Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. Hello and welcome to Love the Words here at East Leeds FM. Tonight in this two-hour programme we have an interview with Steve Dearden of the Writing Squad. Uh, Steve will explain what the Writing Squad is and what they do if you don't know already. He'll also be uh, looking at the present time, what's happening in literature and young people particularly, uh, with young people and also at um, the future. After Steve we have um, a poem by Maya Allen from Canterbury. Uh, Maya sent this in to us at East Leeds FM, the reflections of a young person on her situation at the moment. Fascinating, do stay tuned for that. Followed by The House of Silence, a reading by Matthew Bellwood of a story by Edith Nesbitt, produced by Rosie Parsons. I will come back to you in a little while after The House of Silence to explain what comes after that. Gracias a la vida Me ha dado tanto Me dio dos luceros Que cuando los abro Perfecto distingo so good evening and welcome to Love the Words uh, here on East Leeds FM, not at Chapel FM, FM Arts Centre, but uh, in different people's houses, homes. That's the way we do it at the moment. Tonight I'm going to be talking to Steve Dearden, director of the Writing Squad. So yeah, what? So Steve, you. You you work with writers. You make things happen. Well, I like to think of myself as a, a and I like the phrase a literature activist, um, and it's partly tied with that need to uh, draw more attention to what we do. So, it's not good enough just to do the quiet work, but we have to, you know, advocate. We have to argue the case for more funding for literature, uh, and also because the the provision is, is is so poor in lots of the country, we actually have to go around setting things up you know we can't just um, roll up and do things within established structures you know the large areas particularly rural areas some cities as well bizarrely where there's there's not the kind of infrastructure so if you and this is something that uh, I try and inculcate with with with, with writers that you know that we, we are much better off not waiting for things to happen but doing them ourselves and I think it's that um, that, that defines the activism that, that, you know, part of the politics, particularly in the North around literature, has been that if we want our voices to be heard and if we want to connect with our audiences, then we have to do it because no one else is going to do it for us. Fascinating. I mean, I was looking at your website this morning and uh, the word, obviously, the word literature pops up a great deal. I mean, that, that, even that word is quite problematic for some people, in perhaps many people, how would you define literature? Um, well, it's 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 anything that's written, 
anything that's read, anything that's performed. I think it's, it's it, an easier way of thinking about it is imagining a world without it. And a world without it would be a lot of people standing around with their mouths open and no words coming out. Because uh, if you could imagine the news without the writers, um, you know, Hugh, what's his name, would be just sitting there with nothing to say. If you imagine, you know, soap opera with no words, it'd be acted out by mime artists, which would be terrifying. Um, you know, so literature is anything in which the, the word is, is the medium that people use to enact everything else, whether that's theatre, opera, soap operas, television, films, or whether it's the, that wonderful act that we perform in our own heads in, in terms of reading. People always keep saying that, is, is, is literature a, a problem as a word? And if we can't own our own word, then we're in trouble, really. I remember when I went to the Literature Festival, everyone was saying, we should change the name, we should change the name. And you're thinking, well, you know, no, we, we just occupy the name. We make it something exciting that people want to come to. Um, for people who yeah. don't know what the Writing Squad is, could you just ex explain a little about it? The Writing Squad is a programme um, which has been going for since 2001, and every two years we recruit 30 people between the ages of 16 and 21 uh, from across the whole of the north of England. And um, we offer them a mixture of workshops and uh, our USP, really, which is a lot of one-to-one -one support. So what we provide is driven by their needs and their ambitions and a recognition that those are always changing. And we're focused on developing the work that they're interested in at the moment. So over two years, we work closely with them. Uh, and we don't really have an exit strategy, really. Um, so we're still working with people we recruited in 2001. Um, so we've worked with about 200 odd writers over that period. Um, and about, uh, I reckon, 20, something like, I think the figures now is about 28% of them now earn their living as writers. Another 20 odd percent of them are poets who will never earn their living as writers uh, or who earn, um, you know, part of their living and do other things. Uh, and also lots of people go on and do other things. You know, they, they use writing in their personal lives to um, support their, you know, their well-being or their teachers or you know, they just use writing in their jobs. So, um, whereas others have gone on to the West End or um, to be FT correspondent in Beijing or to write for TV or to get novel deals. Um, so it's a whole range of people. And the important thing for us is that it, the success is measured not by whether you're in the West End or on Broadway, uh, but whether you're doing what you wanted to achieve at the beginning of the process. So everybody has their own goals and we help them to to achieve those. I was looking on the web, uh, the website this morning and it's it's uh, yeah you you talk about the writing squad now being a community of writers. I suppose yeah. that's because so many have come through and they're all in communication well perhaps not all but still in communication with each other, with each other. That's a that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, um, you know people come up to me sometimes and say oh you never guessed who I saw in the wild the other day. So they have this phrase which they've developed themselves about um, you know, when they meet outside the squad, uh, which, which I really like. And there's lots of kind of formal and informal networks. We set up some, but most of the, of the networks are set up by them. By them. And, um, you know, they communicate between each other. We don't know what, about that, and that's fine, that's great. And it's what we want to encourage. Um, because you know as a writer that it, it can be a very solitary um, 
and the best supporters of writers are other writers as long as you know you're, you're brought up in a generous open community where you celebrate other people's success as much as your own can i just ask you is is, is has this model existed before or did you did you invent the mold uh, it didn't exist and that's why we set it up because it, there wasn't anything similar to what there was for say dancers or fine artists or you know almost any other area of the arts if you were interested in it as a young person um, either in the formal sector or through education or through the uh, conservatoire there were pathways through into the profession and there was nothing for writers there wasn't even any undergraduate creative writing degrees which might be a good thing actually but there weren't there were about two MAs um, there weren't things like the wonderful Lee Jang Authors or Hive in South Yorkshire around then. There was nothing. So um, we set it up. And the model really was football and looking at the, I'm sorry to mention this in Leeds, the um, <laughs> academy that Eric Harrison set up at Old Trafford uh, or Carrington, um, where um, you know young players were brought in. They were taught technique and how to play better, but they were also given a much more holistic um Kind of approach to how they they behaved and how they carried themselves and 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 that led obviously to the success of the kind of beckham skulls gigs era and we were very taken with that and you know that's what we tried to emulate with the squad and are other people elsewhere emulating this i'm mean, I just wondering whether it's happening in for instance i know you do a lot of work in other countries but is there such a thing in other countries other nations, you know, the, the whole idea of the writing squad bringing on young writers like this? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of different models now. Um, I don't think there's one quite like ours. We did have to get the name trademarked because people would come and pick my brains and then go away and set up writing squads, which is kind of what we did with the writing squads in um, Wales, which are for much younger kids and based in schools, very different model to them. Um, but... Um, so I think there are there are lots of initiatives now. It'd be unfair to say um, that there weren't, but there's, there's nothing. When I talk to people abroad or people come from abroad and talk to us, I think what really strikes them is the long-term support. Because in most situations, um, what you do get is either a very limited uh, range, so it's built around one person who is interested in a particular thing, particular form and you know most people have to conform to to the kind of style of that group or you get short-term projects so people are picked up and then just dumped a bit like universities really um you know you have your period there and then after that you're out in the world whereas you know you and i know that for writers particularly um well for all writers but particularly prose writers and to a certain extent um script writers it's a very long process to develop, um, you know, someone to become a novelist, for instance. It might be that they're not really, um, you know, have matured as a writer enough to, to, to get a, a novel published by a mainstream press until their mid to late 20s um, at the earliest. So, um, so that long-term support, the fact that they can go away, their lives might be changing, um, you know, they might be ill, they might travel, they just might be totally occupied with discovering who they are and the, the wonderful, you know, life that you could lead and not want to engage so much with us. But that's fine. We don't say, well, 
you know, bugger off then. We kind of keep them, wait for them, and when they're ready to come back to us, we're still there and happy to see them and continue the support. And that, that that's that's unique, I think. We must say something about the uh, the the, uh, the writers who are on your team too. You've got a fantastic core of writers who give that one to one with with your young writers. Just tell us a bit about who they are. Yeah, well, um, two of them are based in West Yorkshire. We've got Malika Booker in uh, Leeds, um, famous for setting up Malika's Kitchen hmm. in London, um, but uh, she's with us here now and. Um, She's a fantastic and inspirational poet. Uh, we've got Emma Adams, who's a playwright, who is just a kind of, you know, there's only one edition of, of Emma. She's kind of inspirational. She's got a very particular kind of eclectic mind um, and quite a radical writer. Uh, so those are the West Yorkshire ones. And then in the northeast, we've got Stevie Ronnie, who's um, a poet, but also a maker. So, you know, when we do workshops with him, there's often lots of, Kind of stuff around um you know things to make books out of or uh, we just made a film uh with him uh, and then we've just appointed for the first time somebody who's not actually on our patch uh francesca haig who's a genre novelist um who lives in london she's australian um and i've just been introducing some writers to her this afternoon and it's great it's a very different perspective for us um you know we are a very northern organization although she has worked at the University of Chester in the past um, you know we did think about what does it mean to actually uh, have someone on the core team who's not in the region but then so many of our writers aren't in the region anymore either you know they're all over the world so that whole sense of um, place is, is not as important as it used to be. Briefly before we move on from the writing squad if, if there are some uh, young writers listening to this just in terms of your catchment for who can apply, just just tell us briefly where you where you have to live and how old you have to be. Right, you have to either live, work, or study in the north, and the north goes from sort of Cheshire, South Yorkshire, right up to the Scottish border. Um, so you could you know you could be from Brighton but studying at the University of Leeds, or you could be from Leeds studying at the University of Brighton or Vancouver or wherever. Doesn't really matter. Or you could just be working here. And you have to be aged between 16 and 21. So we're not going to uh, trawl back through your, uh, through your past in a chronological way, because as you say, you're, quite, you're, you're happiest in the present. But um, just in terms of mentorship, because, I mean, it, that seems to be crucial to what you do and to what the writing squad does. I first met you when you were my uh, mentor from the Arts Council, uh, in my first uh, job as writer in residence in a prison, but I wondered in terms of mentors for you in your earlier uh, in your earlier working life, do any spring to mind that you could tell us about? Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, I suppose like everybody who I meet in this particular profession teaches. So there were three teachers at school who you know, had a relationship with you outside the classroom and treated you as a person rather than a pupil. And they were very inspirational about you know, giving me the kind of sense of entitlement that I could kind of do, that I should just get on with doing what I wanted to do and not worry about anything else. Um, 
And then not a mentor, but a very influential meeting was um, when I worked at Durham University and I was working with some students on, I mean, I was just, I was literally their age. I've just left. I was working with some students on a play by Trevor Griffiths called Apricots. And one of the girls in the play went to see him introducing Reds at Tyneside Cinema and just mentioned to him that we were doing it. And he said, oh, I'll come and spend the day with you tomorrow. And he did, you know, <laughs> we assembled in a rehearsal room, not expecting him to come. And he, and he did turn up and um, spent the day with us. And it was wonderful. And uh, just, and I've known him since, but uh, it was just that generosity to take a risk. He didn't have to do that. It was, a, you know, he was big in Hollywood at that time with, with, with that film. But he just came and spent a day with us and with no sense of his own importance or anything, just very generous. And I've kind of always felt that, that the really brilliant artists. I've worked with Harry Birtwistle as well and the composer and people like that. And, you know, the, the very best, I think, are the, are the most straightforward and the most honest. And, you know, they don't believe in all that rubbish that goes around um, the kind of structures of our business they're interested in their work and they're interested in cricket and they're interested in you <laughs> and and yeah they just want to get on with it really um and I've, I've that i've always valued that sense of generosity someone else who springs to mind um some people in west yorkshire might remember no still this guy called brian cross mm. who ran a company called artimedia mm. he was a bit of a maverick and he, I was his lead officer at the Arts Council. Impossible to kind of relate to him as a you know in the way that the Arts Council wanted him to. But in those days, he had a lot of freedom as officer, so I could cover for him. But Artimedia was a brilliant organisation. It went round doing um, things called electronic village halls, um, where you'd take a load of computer equipment into a into a community and get people to learn how to do Photoshop and. Um, very basic HTML, um, and you would make a, a a button, a transparent GIF button, put it into a piece of HTML and create a link. You didn't know what it linked to, but you, then you might upload a photograph. And it was really about digitising your stories and creating a record of people's stories. But what it was also about was that very basic thing of a link and content and adopting technology early. And in fact, you know, the internet is still only that. It's just a button or a link and content. So I owe him, you know, the fact that I've always been an early adopter, that technology has always been come very easily and has been a tool rather than something we get het up about or have policies about. It's just something we use and it makes our lives better. Uh, and that, I owe Brian that really, um, because it was at a time when I knew everyone outside academia like all the artists who had emails there's about eight of us and we used to go home and like think well what can i write to so-and-so about i've got nothing to say you know <laughs> i was on the phone earlier but i ought to send an email because that's what we're doing now and it was a very exciting time and the internet provider was at in dewsbury if you can imagine that the isp was actually at the top of um, bond street in dewsbury so if, if things you know messed up you could actually go around and see them and they'd fix it for you it was very it was very exciting kind of time but it underpins i mean the you know nothing really has changed it's just got bigger the principles are the same i always associate you with technology and early adoption 
because I remember having a phone call with you years ago, back in the 90s, and you saying, uh, have you heard of email, Peter? And uh, <laughs> I've heard of it, but you know, because I'm not an early adopter. I need to be chivied by someone like you. But uh, yeah, so I think I, I, do, I do note that technology is, is, is very much a, th a thread within your, your work. I mean, you know, tactical, uh, resourceful uh, use of it. Um, before we yak on some more, it'd be good to have some music because voices can be tiring. Um, I've asked you to pick a piece of music or two. What's the first one, Steve? Um, the first one is uh, The Night I Heard Caruso Sing by Everything But The Girl. I realise that both things I've chosen are quite, they sound quite sad, but they're both songs that um, really create emotion in me. And maybe it's the time. Um, they're both very beautiful. Um, they're both full of joy and full of sadness. And um, I think I live a lot of my life sort of strung between uh those two poles um not in the middle usually towards one end or the other but always in a balance um which is a kind of privilege i reckon i've been thinking about it today and you know there are a lot of people who are stuck at one end of that pole and of those poles or one pole or the other um so to be able to be very sad with an element of happiness there as well is 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 a is a privilege and it's a bit of luck. The highlands and the lowlands are the roots my father knows. The holidays at Oban the towns around Montrose, but even at he sleeps They're loading bombs into the hills And the waters in the locks can run deep But never stay I've thought of having children But I've gone and changed my mind It's hard enough to watch the news, let alone explain it to a child to cast your eye across nature over fields of rape and corn and tell him without flinching not to fear where he's been born. Then someone sat me down last night and I heard Caruso sing. He's almost as good as Presley and if I only do one thing, I'll sing songs to my father, I'll sing songs to my child. It's time to hold your loved ones while the chains are loose and the world runs wild. But even as we speak, 
down to a white train How can we afford to ever sleep So sound again So um, that was Everything But The Girl, chosen by Steve Dearden, literature activist and director of the Writing Squad. We're talking to tonight on Love the Words. Um, yeah, in terms of the Writing Squad again, Steve, you've t- you, there's a, one writer in particular you talk about very fondly, uh, Tom Spanbauer, in relation to the Writing Squad and being a kind of godfather of the Writing Squad. But tell us a bit about Tom and your, your collaboration with him over the years. Yeah, yeah. Um... A friend gave me a book. I can't remember how long ago. Must be fifteen years, something like that. Maybe, probably more. Um, called the man who fell in love with the moon, and they said you might like this, and I did. I was blown away by it, and um, I told her that, that how fantastic it was, and she said I was in Barcelona at the moment, and Tom lives in in Portland, in Oregon, where he set up the dangerous writing. Um, workshop which i suppose the most um famous um outcome from is is chuck polinick um a fight club fame which was written on tom's kitchen and table uh in portland and uh, anyway my friend said uh he's in barcelona at the moment on a residency there uh this is do you want his telephone number so i said yeah yeah great and she gave me a telephone number and then i rang him up and said, would you come to Yorkshire on your way back? Um, because at the Arts Council in those days, you could do things like that. You could just think, well, this is a good idea. Let's do it. Um, and he said, yeah, sure. And he came for a week and he spent a week working with, um, at that stage, you know, writers of all ages in, in Yorkshire. Um, and he's a really inspirational guy. I mean, I didn't know this. I think the, the best way of describing Tom, trying to give you a feel for him, is... Uh, when I, I fixed all this up and then I, I drove to Manchester Airport to pick him up and I realised as I was waiting that I hadn't actually imagined what he might be like. I was just seeing the book still. And the book is this amazing thing about a half-breed um, American um, indigenous person who lives in a brothel, um, is probably in love with his father, um it's just it's just an extraordinary book about love about um it's set in idaho it's um about life it's just about stories it's about everything really um and i was standing there thinking god maybe this was just a just a brilliant piece of um artifice and it's probably a really boring academic or something anyway he comes through and there's this tall guy in a kind of cowboy shirt and boots and uh, gets in the car and just turns to me and says, I'm the most difficult person you will ever work with. <laughs> and then he just broke up laughing. And uh, from then on, uh, for the whole week, we just um, talked about everything, absolutely everything. Uh, everything that we knew, we just talked about. And the first night, I took him back to Ilkley, took him to his hotel. We had a meal at my house and then took him to his hotel. And I went to bed that night and I had this dream and in the dream, Tom and I were talking, and outside the window, all these fast jets were flying past, trailing smoke. And I was saying, look at the jets, Tom. And he was going, no, no, come on, just drink the wine. You know. Anyway, so we had this week, and then I drove him back to Manchester Airport. He went through um, security, 
I was just exhausted and then I was going to go and see my dad who lives quite near the airport and I just thought I can't see anyone actually I just need a bit of time not talking and I went up to the top of the multi-story car park uh, at the airport and looked out across the airport and there on the runway was the Red Arrows and they took off and did a display over at Woodford which is about two or three miles away so there's there these bizarre bookends and almost everything about you know Tom is that both within the literature but also just him as a person he's highly inspirational very motivational very he does this thing about um, looking left eye to left eye that if you look in someone's left eye with your left eye there's no way that you can't be honest with them mm -hmm. and I think that's very much uh, what his writing's about and since then I brought him back um, to the UK three times I think and he's worked with the writing squad and with other writers he did an Arvon course um, and a couple of years ago I saw him and his partner Sage in uh, Portland and sat at the table, the dangerous writing table in his basement where you know that great group has um, was formed. He's very ill now which is sad I think the, the kind of years of AIDS meds and um, everything else has kind of caught up with him a bit but it was lovely to see him and spend a few days with him and Sage and as I say he's still a a presence for us, um, particularly around his very um, his, his his writing style, which is very much about go to go right on the skin, right on the body, go to where the pain is, um, write in a broken tongue, a burnt tongue. He calls it. You know, don't try and turn out literature. Mm. Um, you know, write use Anglo-Saxon words, and his book. Um, uh, the Manifold and the Love with the Moon has just been released again this year uh, with an introduction by Andrew McMillan by Penguin um, so it's available again in this country which is great and is a, is a great presence and he also named a character in his last book Ruth Dearden um, <laughs> which is not a very nice character so I don't know, he also said he was going to name a character after me which I thought he was just taking a pee, but um, yeah, Ruth did and appeared. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you about two things that I, f I feel are important to you, and you've touched on one already, uh, So, and that's flight. You seem to be yeah. in love with it. I suppose it comes a bit from when I was a kid. Um, I had a friend who had a plane, and we used to go flying at the weekends occasionally, Um and my grandfather were part, one grandfather was a pilot the other desperately wanted to be but couldn't fly um, so it's kind of there there's always been a thing uh, and I, just, I think the thing I love I, 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 went, I did fly the other day my, I got a, a present of, a, of an hour up in a small plane which was great um, but what I think I love about flying is the geography which is a kind of bizarre thing to say, I guess. But I just love the, um, the I love the the feeling of motion in the air, but moving across a known landscape. Um, so I have to sit next to the window, you know. Really, <laughs> sometimes if it's a really long overnight flight, I'll sit near the aisle because that's sensible. But actually, I I just love just gazing out of the window and and, and looking at the landscape and hopefully knowing more or less where I am in the world. And if you're not sitting by the window, you're one of those annoying people who crane over if, you, if, if I'm sitting by the window. No, 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 you have to make a choice. <laughs> you can't have both. Because, yeah, you have to, you have to, you're in a totally different state of mind if you're not by the window. 
Does cycling relate to that too? I mean, you know, the sense of landscape and geography moving moving with you. Do you know, I've never thought of that, and it's true. It's absolutely true, because I'm one of those sad people who have got a big map here, and when I've, even when I'm cycling, I think, oh, I'm going off the orange. So I'm marking orange everywhere I've been, which now is Manchester's just shredded. It's like everywhere and up into the Peak District and down into Cheshire and across to Liverpool. Um, so it's quite hard to find places I haven't been, but, but I'm very conscious when I do. And then I come back and I, I mark it on the map. And I, it, it, yeah, it's the same. Before we finish, uh, tell us about the writing squad. What's happening now? How, what in response to this COVID-19 crisis we're in? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to make it absolutely clear that for individuals, it's been a terrible time um, for, for lots of them. Some have, some have enjoyed a break. Some have enjoyed having more uh, time to do what they really want rather than work in kind of low-paid jobs for people who don't respect them very much. Um, but, you know, the, the, just like everybody else, there are people who've been furloughed and don't know if they're going to go back to jobs. There's been people who've been furloughed and not been able to cope with all that time. There's people who've been left high and dry by universities or, um, you know, and there's people obviously who've lost um, relatives. So, you know, it's for, for individuals, you have to say it is a really difficult and obviously a horrible time. For the organisation, it has been fantastic um, because it has given us a new iteration, if you like. And, and it's funny in January, I was really thinking, what, what, what you know, what's going to be different? What's are we just going to do the same thing again? Which I'm not very keen on. Although the model remains the same, there's always something different. And I couldn't quite see what it was going to be this time. And I've been doing quite a lot of thinking, bizarrely, about. Um, Again, this kind of irritation with the with the art structures that they're all around buildings. And I'd heard a woman in Toronto from Microsoft talking about a new building in Amsterdam and how it was amazing because um, nobody had desks and you had to book a desk and you all work remotely and they're encouraging people to work from home as if it was new. And I was thinking, the writers have been doing this forever, even before the internet. That's how writers operated. Um, you know, and they say each other letters, <laughs> but now, um, you know, we, 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 we still operate as this dispersed um, set of individuals who use some sort of communication tool to interrelate. And um, so when COVID started to happen, it suddenly made us completely ready. And we'd already been using Zoom to bring in people to workshops um, who are either abroad or we have a um, uh, one of our writers is in palliative care, so it enabled her to, to attend workshops. So Zoom was a thing in our lives already. Um, but now we're all on it and um, we're doing it more often. So we used to do 12 to 15 workshops a year. We're doing, uh, we're doing five a week now. <laughs> um, we've... We, we asked them what they wanted. Um, they wanted more workshops. We put on more workshops on Zoom. Um, they're leading a lot more workshops. Um, we're doing these things called mini goals where um, either playwrights or prose writers or, or um, poets meet 
once a week and um, agree a small achievable goal. They can't have a big goal. The big goals are banned. So if they want to write the epic novel of Corona, they have to go and talk to um, Francesca about that. They can't bring it up in the meeting. It has to be a small one, like to write 500 words, to go swimming, to look after myself, to you know get up at a proper time or you know whatever it is it could be anything it's been quite fun I go to the beach was one of them which was fine and then we meet again and just review that and that's been this real kind of more micro level of support which we've not had before and I think we're not going to be able to put that back in the box we're going to have to continue that in some way maybe less often maybe more of one of the self-sustaining communities that we develop and then um in terms of the workshops, um, it's brought a whole new lot of people in who haven't been involved with the squad for a few years, or people who've not been able to attend um, the physical workshops because of you know various reasons to do with their health or anxiety or, or whatever. So it's it's really brought this new um, energy and a new dynamic to what we're doing, and it's really really exciting. Um, We've just recruited the new squad and whereas normally I would meet them physically, which is great because it means I go to their place. So, you know, I'd go to Saltburn or Cumbria or or wherever and meet them in there, in there where they lived, which I think was, again, a defining thing about the, the squad. Whereas this time what we're doing is we're, um, you know, meeting them in threes. There's a previous member of the squad there at that meeting. So we're meeting them in a different way. And I've not worked out yet whether that kind of... Um, you know, having more people there outweighs the value of me, you know, spending a bit more time with them individually, actually where they are. Um, it'll be interesting to see. And although I'm really looking forward to the physical workshops when we when we walk together to go and buy food at lunchtime and sit and eat together and maybe walk to the station together and just have that completely um, different kind of physical interaction with people. Um, you know, there, there are, we're not hanging around waiting for that. We're getting on and um, doing things in a different way, and that's 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 just exciting. Um, mm. And as I say, it's it's going to. It, in some ways, a lot of what's gone on in the last few months has felt a bit like when people move up to Leeds from the south, and they start they meet us and they say. You know, they keep telling us about all the fantastic things that there are in Leeds as if we didn't know. And that wasn't the reason we decided to stay or Manchester or wherever in the north. Mm. You know, that kind of arrivist enthusiasm that feels a bit like that in a lot of the art sector at the moment. Mm. You know, they're, they're, they're getting all their old postcards and things out and putting them on the Internet and, you know, their holiday photos. And I mean, a lot of that's quite good, obviously. I'm, I'm exaggerating for effect, but... You know, it does feel that I'm just worried that, you know, as soon as this is all over, they'll go back to being exactly how they were before. And all the inequalities, that lack of visibility, the lack of resources that literature has will just be baked into whatever settlement is happens afterwards to bail out all the buildings that didn't have the courage to furlough their staff straight away. Um, and uh, we're very slow at adapting and have built up, you know, debt, have, have built up a kind of inertia and are already, you know, I know they have to plan for the future, but the discourse when you're in meetings with these people is all about recovery. And it's very difficult to, to, to have a different narrative, which is saying, 
you know, we're beyond recovery. We're already in a new country and it's very exciting. And we've, we've been, you know, led by circumstances rather than reacting to them. Sounds great. And it's, it sounds, uh, it's very cheering to hear, to hear about this positivity and about, and uh, in terms of, yeah, carrying this through into a, a new world. Are you, are you, are you saying in a way that literature needs to be, um, I mean, obviously it has been quite building based. The arts is quite building based, but is this what we're moving away from in, in generally across the arts? Well, the arts isn't building based, um, really. You know, it's a bit like saying religion is building based. And of course, you know, churches are a big part of religion, but, you know, the, the, the actual act of religion is a daily or hourly or minute by minute process. Um, and you feel it again. I was in a meeting the other day of the kind of Manchester Arts Mafia, and they were all talking about starting again. And I was saying at one, there's some quite a lot of young people in this meeting. I was just saying at one stage, look, it's happening now. You know, we've just been doing this mail art project. Here it is. It's just come through the mailbox now. Um, you know, people are making stuff. The theatre doesn't happen just when it's on the stage. You know, it's been written in playwrights' heads now. Um, People are trying out ideas with each other now. People are singing with each other. People are, you know, it's just happens all the time. And this idea that it only only uh, only happens when it's in these things that attract all the resources and all the attention and, and is run by a kind of, um, you know, quite small group of cultural apparatchiks who, who act as gatekeepers and dictators of what happens. Um, and most of them all come from a similar sort of place. Um, but actually, you know, if, particularly, I think, if you look at to the younger generations, art is just happening all the time, everywhere, and the institutions are just haven't a clue about that, really, and haven't a clue how to, you know, what their role in that is, which is just actually to open the doors. You know, and I've always thought, and there are other people who have said this, that you know, buildings should not be run by people, single people. You know, or if you look at all the cultural institutions in Leeds, they're run by the buildings are run by single people who decide the program. If you open up that and put about you know twenty companies or fifteen companies, loads of individuals in those buildings, they will suddenly become much more exciting and much more interesting places where more people more varieties of people will go. Another piece of music? There is a story which I don't know if it's true. It's um, Gracias por la Vida by um, Mercedes Sosa. And I believe that this song is sung in the uh, stadium in uh, Buenos Aires where many of the disappeared were taken by the military regime and um, imprisoned and many killed. And um, this was the first concert after... Um, it was retaken back by artists and by people and by audiences and um, there is a spine chilling moment in this song when uh, the applause starts and that for me is um, just expresses everything um, about joy and about life and about why we do what we do and of course gracias a la vida uh, for those who don't speak Spanish um, which includes me, actually. So my, my my knowledge of the title is is all it's limited to. Is thank you to life and thank you for 
the great it's a kind of list song, isn't it, about the things that that she loves about yeah. life. Yeah. Anyway, Steve, thanks ever so much for for being with us, and um, yeah, you're welcome back at Chapel FM anytime you're passing, and and, and we hope to uh, keep our link to and collaboration with the Writers Squad yeah. as live as possible. Definitely. Thank you, Peter. Gracias a la vida Me ha dado tanto Me dio dos luceros Que cuando los abro Perfecto distingo Lo negro del blanco Y en el alto cielo Su fondo estrellado Y en las multitudes el hombre que yo amo. Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto, me ha dado el sonido. Con las palabras que pienso y declaro, madre, amigo, hermano, y luz alumbrando la ruta del alma del que estoy amando. Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto, me ha dado la marcha de mis pies cansados, con ellos anduve ciudades y charcos, playas y desiertos, montañas y llanos. Tuya, tu calle y tu patio. Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto. Que agita su marco Cuando miro el fruto Del cerebro humano Cuando miro el bueno Tan lejos del malo Cuando miro el fondo De tus ojos Claro. Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto, me ha dado la risa y me ha dado el llanto. Así 
yo distingo Dicha de quebranto Los dos materiales Que forman mi canto Y el canto de ustedes Que es el mismo canto El canto de todos Que es mi Love the commas, love the apostrophes, love the colons and the question marks, love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, Lita, no, no, Lita, per amarti, no, no, Lita, per so thank you so much to Steve Dearden for that interview. Um, you can look on the Writing Squad website for more details. We now have a poem from Maya Allen. They often see me as white. Damn, I saw me as white. But my mum's white, so that's all right. And don't forget, my skin is light. So I'm not really black. But don't I want to be black? Because remember, black don't crack. So maybe I'll inherit that. My hair is my defining feature, making me some kind of mythical creature. Who even cares if I have something to say? My hair is bouncy, and I should never wear it any other way. Although maybe I should straighten it. I'd look better like that. Maybe the boys will like me then. When I look like the other girls, they'll like me then. But the guys on dating apps like that I'm brown. It's like I wear some kind of majestic crown. They wonder if I'm one of those dirty brown girls who'll go down on them whilst they push away my curls. They want to get that stereotype fix. Damn, that's why they want to know what's my mix. They don't want to get to know me. And if I act sweet, they'll know it's phony because brown girls are loud and incredibly angry. Wait, so am I white or brown? I wonder blankly. Because the thing is, everyone picks and chooses. One day you're one and the other side loses. The white girl is who they want me to be, whilst the brown side is an exciting mystery. But hang on, hang on, haven't I been picking too? Yes, I have, that's probably true. But there are reasons, really there are. I'm not making excuses, but being mixed race is hard. There are so many questions running round in my head, and this isn't something that can just be put to bed. When will my colour stop being a source of intrigue? When will I be classed as out of someone's league? Obviously never, because brown girls don't win, but you aren't brown, you have light skin. But my body suggests otherwise. I've got curves and really big thighs, so I must be African or from Jamaica. If I don't own my brownness, am I a traitor? Anyway, of course I'm white, because I grew up with mum, never had to wonder where I'm from. Born in London, but grew up further down south. Where are the others like me, awaiting to burst from my mouth? 
Well, that boy is Spanish and she's Portuguese, so we'll bunch you with them just for ease. Ethnically ambiguous, technically white? Let's just see your whiteness. Let's not start a fight. Why does daddy not want to visit me? Why does he never want to leave Hackney? It must be me that he doesn't want to see. Not that he's afraid of entering white cracker country. He can't be scared of being pulled over. He drives an Audi, not a breaking down Rover. And yes, he smokes cigarettes, so of course we too. Because remember, that's all black men do. They don't have anything else to bring. But if you want weed, just give one a ring. Then one day it hits you. Your dad is always scared. And you're just angry because someone touched your hair. So you try to push down the experiences you've had. Because unlike your dad's, they aren't that bad. You've grown up white. And you just acknowledged you're black. And the suppression you've allowed is a weight on your back. Because you failed your heritage, your dad too. There's just no way he could be proud of you. You've forgotten your history, who you are. Watching in from a distance, from further afar. You're in turmoil on the inside. Who you are, you've been trying to hide. You've wanted so long to just fit in. And you never quite have because of your skin. But now you're realising this is something you're part of. Even if it's only something you know half of. Never again will I try to suppress. Every day my race will be something I address. Because I may be black and I may be white, but right now it's my black side that needs us to fight. So I'm fully embracing my black girl role because maybe then I can finally feel whole. Thank you so much to Maya for that poem sent in from Canterbury down south. Um, Now a short story read by um, Matthew Bellwood, produced by Rosie Parsons. It's by Edith Nesbitt, The House of Silence. The House of Silence by Edith Nesbitt. The thief stood close under the high wall and looked to right and left. To the right the road wound white and sinuous, lying like a twisted ribbon over the broad grey shoulder of the hill. To the left the road turned sharply down towards the river. Beyond the ford the road went away slowly in a curve, prolonged for miles through the green marshes. No least black fly of a figure stirred on it. There were no travellers at such an hour on such a road. The thief looked across the valley at the top of the mountain, flushed with sunset, and at the grey-green of the olives about its base. The terraces of Olives were already dusk with twilight, but his keen eyes could not have missed the smallest variance or shifting of their lights and shadows. Nothing stirred there. He was alone. Then, turning, he looked again at the wall behind him. The face of it was grey and sombre, but all along the top of it, in the crannies of the coping stones, Orange wallflowers and sulphur-coloured snapdragons shone among the haze of feathery flowered grasses. He looked again at the place where some of the stones had fallen from the coping, had fallen within the wall, for none lay in the road without. The bough of a mighty tree covered the gap with its green mantle from the eyes of any chance wayfarer. But the thief was no chance wayfarer and he had surprised the only infidelity of the great wall to its trust. To the chance wayfarer, too, the wall's denial had seemed absolute, unanswerable. Its solid stone, close-knit by mortar hardly less solid, showed not only a defence, it offered a defiance. 
a menace. But the thief had learnt his trade. He saw that the mortar might be loosened a little here, broken a little there, and now the crumbs of it fell rustling onto the dry, dusty grass of the roadside. He drew back, took two quick steps forward, and, with a spring sudden and agile as a cat's, grasped the wall where the gap showed and drew himself up. Then he rubbed his hands on his knees, because his hands were bloody from the sudden grasping of the rough stones, and sat astride on the wall. He parted the leafy boughs and looked down. Below him lay the stones that had fallen from the wall. Already grass was growing upon the mound they made. As he ventured his head beyond the green leafage, the level light of the sinking sun struck him in the eyes. It was like a blow. He dropped softly from the wall and stood in the shadow of the tree, looking, listening. Before him stretched the park, wide and still, dotted here and there with trees and overlaid with gold poured from the west. He held his breath and listened. There was no wind to stir the leaves to those rustlings which may deceive and disconcert the keenest and the boldest. Only the sleepy twitter of the birds, and the little sudden soft movements of them in the dusky privacy of the thick-leaved branches. There was in all the broad park no sign of any other living thing. The thief trod softly along under the wall where the trees were thickest, and at every step he paused to look and listen. It was quite suddenly that he came upon the little lodge near the great gates of wrought iron, with the marble gateposts bearing upon them the two gaunt griffins, the cognizance of the noble house whose lands these were. The thief drew back into the shadow and stood still. Only his heart beat thickly. He stood still as the tree trunk beside him, looking, listening. He told himself that he heard nothing, saw nothing. Yet he became aware of things. That the door of the lodge was not closed, that some of its windows were broken, and that into its little garden straw and litter had drifted from the open door. And that between the stone step and the threshold grass was growing inches high. When he was aware of this, he stepped forward and entered the lodge. All the sordid sadness of a little deserted home met him here. Broken crocks and bent pans, straw, old rags and a brooding, dusty stillness. There has been no one here since the old keeper died. They told the truth, said the thief. And he made haste to leave the lodge. There was nothing in it now that any man need covet, only a desolation and the memory of death. So he went slowly among the trees, and by devious ways drew a little nearer to the great house that stood in its walled garden in the middle of the park. From very far off, above the green wave of trees that broke round it, he could see the towers of it rising black against the sunset, and between the trees came glimpses of its marble, white where the faint grey light touched it from the east. Moving slowly, 
vigilant, alert, with eyes turning always to right and to left, with ears which felt the intense silence more acutely than they could have felt any tumult. The thief reached the low wall of the garden at the western side. The last redness of the sunset's reflection had lighted all the many windows, and the vast place blazed at him for an instant before the light dipped behind the black bar of the trees, and left him face to face with a pale house, whose windows now were black and hollow, and seemed like eyes that watched him. Every window was closed. The lower ones were guarded by jalousies. Through the glass of the ones above, he could see the set, painted faces of the shutters. From far off he had heard and known the plash-plash of fountains, and now he saw their white-changing columns rise and fall against the background of the terrace. The garden was full of rose-bushes, trailing and unpruned, and the heavy, happy scent of the roses, still warm from the sun, breathed through the place, exaggerating the sadness of its tangled desolation. Strange figures gleamed in the deepening dusk, but they were too white to be feared. He crept into a corner where Psyche drooped in marble, and, behind her pedestal, crouched. He took food from his pockets and ate and drank, and between the mouthfuls he listened and watched. The moon rose and struck a pale fire from the face of the house and from the marble limbs of the statues, and the gleaming water of the fountains drew the moonbeams into the unchanging change of its rise and fall. Something rustled and stirred among the roses. The thief grew rigid. His heart seemed suddenly hollow. He held his breath. Through the deepening shadows something gleamed white, and not marble for it moved. It came towards him. Then the silence of the night was shattered by a scream as the white shape glided into the moonlight. The thief resumed his munching, and another shape glittered after the first. Curse the beasts, he said, and took another draught from his bottle, as the white peacocks were blotted out by the shadows of the trees and the stillness of the night grew more intense. In the moonlight the thief went round and about the house, pushing through the trailing briars that clung to him. And now, grown bolder, he looked closely at doors and windows. But all were fast barred as the doors of a tomb, and the silence deepened as the moonlight waxed. There was one little window, high up, that showed no shutter, he looked at it, measured its distance from the ground and from the nearest of the great chestnut trees. Then he walked along under the avenue of chestnuts, with head thrown back and eyes fixed on the mystery of their interlacing branches. At the fifth tree he stopped, leaped to the lowest bough, missed it, leaped again, caught it, and drew up his body. Then climbing, creeping, swinging, while the leaves, agitated by his progress, rustled to the bending of the boughs. He passed to that tree, to the next, swift, assured, unhesitating. 
and so from tree to tree, till he was at the last tree, and on the bough that stretched to touch the little window with its leaves. He swung from this. The bough bent and cracked and would have broken, but that at the only possible instant the thief swung forward, felt the edge of the window with his feet, loosed the bough, sprang and stood, flattened against the mouldings, clutching the carved dripstone with his hands. He thrust his knee through the window, waiting for the tinkle of the falling glass to settle into quietness, opened the window and crept in. He found himself in a corridor. He could see the long line of its white windows and the bars of moonlight falling across the inlaid wood of its floor. He took out his thief's lantern, high and slender like a tall cup, lighted it and crept softly along the corridor, listening between his steps till the silence grew to be like a humming in his ears. And slowly, stealthily, he opened door after door, the rooms were spacious and empty. His lantern's yellow light flashing into their corners told him this. Some poor, plain furniture he discerned, a curtain or a bench here and there, but not what he sought. So large was the house that presently it seemed to the thief that for many hours he had been wandering along its galleries, creeping down its wide stairs, opening the grudging doors of the dark, empty rooms whose silence spoke ever more insistently in his ears. But it is as he told me, he said inwardly. No living soul in all the place. The old man, a servant of this great house. He told me. He knew. And I have found all, even as he said. Then the thief turned away from the arched emptiness of the grand staircase, and in a far corner of the hall he found himself speaking in a whisper, because now it seemed to him that nothing would serve, but that this clamorous silence should be stilled by a human voice. The old man said it would be thus, all emptiness and not profit to a man. And he died, and I tended him. Dear Jesus, how our good deeds come home to us. And he told me how the last of the great family had gone away none knew whither. And the tales I heard in the town, how the great man had not gone, but lived here in hiding. It is not possible. There is the silence of death in this house. He moistened his lips with his tongue. The stillness of the place seemed to press upon him like a solid thing. It is like a dead man on one's shoulders, thought the thief. And he straightened himself up and whispered again. The old man said, The door with the carved griffin and the roses enwreathed, and the seventh rose holds the secret in its heart. With that the thief set forth again, creeping softly across the bars of moonlight down the corridor. And after much seeking he found at last, under the angle of the great stone staircase, behind a mouldering tapestry wrought with peacocks and pines, a door. 
and on it carved a griffin, wreathed about with roses. He pressed his finger into the deep heart of each carven rose, and when he pressed the rose that was the seventh in number from the griffin, he felt the inmost part of it move beneath his finger as though it sought to escape. So he pressed again more strongly, leaning against the door till it swung open, and he passed through it, looking behind him to see that nothing followed. The door he closed as he entered, and now he was, as it seemed, in some other house. The chambers were large and lofty as those whose hushed emptiness he had explored, but these rooms seemed warm with life, yet held no threat, no terror, to the dim yellow flicker from the lantern came out of the darkness hints of a crowded magnificence, a lavish profusion of beautiful objects such as he had never in his life dreamed of, though all that life had been one dream of the lovely treasures which rich men hoard, and which, by the thief's skill and craft, may come to be his. He passed through the rooms, turning the light of his lantern this way and that, and ever the darkness withheld more than the light revealed. He knew that thick tapestries hung from the walls, velvet curtains mashed the windows. His hand, exploring eagerly, felt the rich carving of chairs and presses. The great beds were hung with silken cloth, wrought in gold thread with glimmering, strange, starry devices. Broad sideboards flashed back to his lantern's questionings, the faint white laugh of silver. The tall cabinets could not, with all their reserve, suppress the confession of wrought gold. And, from the caskets into whose depths he flashed the light, came the trembling avowal of rich jewels. And now, at last, that carved door closed between him and the poignant silence of the deserted corridors. The thief felt a sudden gaiety of heart, a sense of escape, of security. He was alone, yet warmed and companioned. The silence here was no longer a horror, but a consoler, a friend. And, indeed, now he was not alone. The ample splendours about him, the spoils which long centuries had yielded to the grasp of a noble family, these were companions after his own heart. He flung open the shade of his lantern and held it high above his head. The room still kept half its secrets. The discretion of the darkness should be broken down. He must see more of this splendour, not in unsatisfying dim detail, but in the lit, gorgeous mass of it. The narrow bar of the lantern's light chafed him. He sprang onto the dining table and began to light the half-burnt chandelier. There were a hundred candles, and he lighted all, so that the chandelier swung like a vast living jewel in the centre of the hall. Then, as he turned, all the colour in the room leapt out at him. The purple of the couches, the green gleam of the delicate glass, the blue of the tapestries, and the vivid scarlet of the velvet hangings. And with the colour sprang the gleams of white from the silver, of yellow from the gold, of many-coloured fire from strange inlaid work and jewelled caskets, till the thief stood aghast with rapture in the strange sudden revelation of this concentrated splendour.
He went along the walls with a lighted candle in his hand. The wax dripped warm over his fingers as he went, lighting one after another the tapers and the sconces of the silver-framed glasses. In the state bedroom, he drew back suddenly, face to face with a death-white countenance in which black eyes blazed at him with triumph and delight. And then he laughed aloud. He had not known his own face in the strange depths of this mirror. It had no sconces like the others, or he would have known it for what it was. It was framed in Venice glass, wonderful, gleaming, iridescent. The thief dropped the candle and threw his arms wide with a gesture of supreme longing. If I could carry it all away, all, all, every beautiful thing, to sell some, the less beautiful, and to live with the others all my days. And now a madness came over the thief. So little a part of all these things could he bear away with him. Yet all were his, his for the taking. Even the huge carved presses and the enormous vases of solid silver, too heavy for him to lift. Even these were his. Had he not found them? He, by his own skill and cunning. He went about in the rooms, touching one after the other the beautiful, rare things. He caressed the gold and the jewels. He threw his arms round the great silver vases. He wound round himself the heavy red velvet of the curtain, where the griffins gleamed in embossed gold and shivered with pleasure at the soft clinging of its embrace. He found, in a tall cupboard, curiously shaped flasks of wine, such wine as he had never tasted, and he drank of it slowly, in little sips, from a silver goblet, and from a green Venice glass, and from a cup of rare pink china. Knowing that any one of his drinking vessels was worth enough to keep him in idleness for a long year. For the thief had learnt his trade, and it is part of a thief's trade to know the value of things. He threw himself on the rich couches, sat in the stately carved chairs, leaned his elbows on the ebony tables. He buried his hot face in the chill, smooth linen of the great bed and wondered to find it still scented delicately, as though some sweet woman had laid there but last night. He went hither and thither, laughing with pure pleasure and making to himself an unbridled carnival of the joys of possession. In this wise the night wore on, and with the night his madness wore away. So presently he went about among the treasures, no more with the eyes of a lover, but with the eyes of a thief. And he chose those precious stones which he knew were the most precious, and put them in the bag he had brought, and with them some fine wrought goldsmith's work, and the goblet out of which he had drunk the wine. Though it was but of silver, he would not leave it. The green Venice glass he broke, and the cup, for he said, No man less fortunate than I tonight shall ever again drink from them. But he harmed nothing else of all the beautiful things, because he loved them. 
Then, leaving the low and even ends of the candle still alight, he turned to the door by which he had come in. There were two doors, side by side, carved with straight lilies, and between them a panel, wrought with the griffin and the seven roses, enwreathed. He pressed his finger in the heart of the seventh rose, hardly hoping that the panel would move. And indeed it did not. And he was about to seek for a secret spring among the lilies, when he perceived that one of the doors wrought with these had opened itself a little. So he passed through it and closed it after him. I must guard my treasures, he said. But when he had passed through the door and closed it, and put out his hand to raise the tattered tapestry that covered it from without, his hand met the empty air, and he knew that he had not come out by the door through which he had entered. When the lantern was lighted, it showed him a vaulted passage, whose floor and whose walls were stone, and there was a damp air and a mouldering scent in it, as of a cellar long unopened. He was cold now, and the room with the wine and the treasures seemed long ago and far away, though but a door in a moment divided him from it. And though some of the wine was in his body and some of the treasures in his hands, he set about to find the way to the quiet night outside, for this seemed to him a haven and a safeguard, since, with the closing of that door, he had shut away warmth and light and companionship. He was enclosed in walls once more, and once more menaced by the invading silence that was almost a presence. Once more it seemed to him that he must creep softly, must hold his breath before he ventured to turn a corner, for always he felt that he was not alone, that near him was something, and that its breath, too, was held. So he went by many passages and stairways, and could find no way out. And after a long time of searching, he crept by another way back to come unawares from the door, which shut him off from the room where the many lights were, and the wine and the treasure. Then terror leaped out upon him from the dark hush of the place, and he beat on the door with his hands and cried aloud, till the echo of his cry in the groined roof cowed him back into silence. Again he crept stealthily by strange passages, and again he could find no way except after much wandering, back to the door where he had begun. And now the fear of death began to beat in his brain, with blows like a hammer. To die here like a rat in a trap, never to see the sun alight again, never to climb in at a window or see brave jewels shine under his lantern, but to wander and wander and wander between these inexorable walls till he died, and the rats, admitting him to their brotherhood, swarmed round the dead body of him. I had better have been born a fool, said the thief. Then, once more, he went through the damp and the blackness of the vaulted passages, tremulously searching for some outlet, but in vain. Only at last, in a corner behind a pillar, 
he found a very little door, and a stair that led down. So he followed it, to wander among other corridors and cellars, with the silence heavy about him, and despair growing thick and cold like a fungus about his heart, and in his brain the fear of death, beating like a hammer. It was quite suddenly in his wanderings, which had grown into an aimless frenzy, having now less of searching it than of flight from the insistent silence, that he saw at last a light. And it was the light of day, coming through an open door. He stood at the door and breathed the air of the morning. The sun had risen and touched the tops of the towers of the house with white radiance. The birds were singing loudly. It was morning then, and he was a free man. He looked about him for a way to come at the park, and thence to the broken wall and the white road, which he had come by a very long time before. For this door opened on an inner, enclosed courtyard, still in damp shadow, though the sun above struck level across it. A courtyard where tall weeds grew thick and dank. The dew of the night was heavy on them. And as he stood and looked, he was aware of a low, buzzing sound that came from the other side of the courtyard. He pushed through the weeds towards it, and the sense of a presence in the silence came upon him more than ever it had done in the darkened house. Though now it was day, and the birds sang all gaily, and the good sun shone so bravely overhead. As he thrust aside the weeds, which grew waist-high, he trod on something that seemed to writhe under his feet, like a snake. He started back and looked down. It was the long, firm, heavy plait of a woman's hair. And just beyond lay the green gown of a woman and a woman's hands, and her golden head, and her eyes. All about the place where she lay was the thick buzzing of flies, and the black swarming of them. The thief saw, and he turned, and he fled back to his doorway, and down the steps and through the maze of vaulted passages, fled in the dark and empty-handed, because when he had come into the presence that informed that house with silence, he had dropped lantern and treasure and fled wildly, the horror in his soul driving him before it. Now fear is more wise than cunning. So, whereas he had sought for hours with his lantern and with all his thief's craft to find the way out, and had sought in vain, he now, in the dark and blindly, without thought or will, without pause or let, found the one way that led to a door, shot back the bolts and fled through the awakened rose garden and across the dewy park. He dropped from the wall into the road and stood there looking eagerly to right and left. To the right the road wound white and sinuous, like a twisted ribbon over the great grey shoulder of the hill. To the left, the road curved down towards the river. No least black fly of a figure 
stirred on it. There are no travellers on such a road at such an hour. Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words. From ELFM. Thank you to Matthew Bellwood, Rosie Parsons for the story. And, uh, and now we're going to hear something that we first put out a few years ago. It's from a project I did with some older people at St Augustine's Church in Hare Hills. Um, older people talking about how they came to Leeds, mainly from Italy but also from other places around the world in the 1940s, 50s, how they got started here in Leeds, how they continued. Um, and followed by um, a contribution from the writing squad, a regular feature, Produced by Charlotte Carrick. I've got loads of jackets. I know, I think so. You haven't seen me in a really mini skirt, have you? I have. Yeah. Yeah. Not the telling me. The hot And she was on a motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was in Italy and in 1957 uh, one of my friends from my village came in England to work and um, somehow the place where she worked they asked if some more girls want to come uh, so she was my friend my, my sister's friend she got to yeah she, she told us you know I want to come yeah so we came here 1957, with four years contract to work in the mills with textile. Mm. So we set off 3rd of June, we reached Leeds, 7th of June, about two, 1 o'clock at night. And they came, took us to the hostel, and the next few days they showed around the work and what kind of jobs and this and that. Uh, I didn't expect what I saw, you know, big factory because I never see anything like that to where I come from. Um, all those machines and so on. It was uh, a bit scary, but I was not scared another way because I had my older sister with me and all the friends from a village. We was about one weekend was about twelve from the same village, same time. Uh, so it was nice in one way, but then I started missing my parents. My mum was special because we never went outside the door. I was very happy, first of all, to be joining my parents, who I had not seen for seven years. Although they were in contact with us, you know, I had the best of both worlds. Wonderful grandparents, and my parents used to send parcels and money and my pocket money, so I had the best of both worlds. But I was equally happy to come and join my parents. My sister had come in the February and I came in the August of the same year. And then I was, you know, was like a little show of, oh, I'm going to England to all my school friends, oh, I'm going to England. And it was just lovely for a 14-year-old. Mm -hmm. 
1960, um, because I had two sisters over here, and uh, back home uh, we had to have a chaperone. If you go to the cinema, we had to have a chaperone in the back of us. Go somewhere else, any feast, somebody had to come behind us. We were not allowed to speak to any boys. If you would speak to any boys, uh, which was me, when you go back home, there was uh, nothing about. Add that of a couple of cake on the backside. <laughs> so I came in England and I said to both my parents, I said, you don't trust me in here when you go to be honest behind us, girls, not boys, girls. But I says, I'm going in England just for two or three years just to prove you that I can look after myself. So you don't have to be behind me. I came just as I said, repeating, two or three, the most of four years. So anyway, I got the contract for four years. I came from Trinidad. I was 18 years old. I came in 1968. All I could remember is my dad putting me on a plane, BOAC they had at the moment. And I had some cousin, I had references from my cousin saying, it's lovely, England is a lovely place. Come and study. But I came, when I came, uh, I entered Britain in London, of course. and. Um, I'm, I was met by the British Council, and they were absolutely marvelous. I was so frightened, I'm thinking to myself, where the devil am I going? I'm leaving such lovely family and coming in a stranger's land. However, <laughs> they took me to this hotel and made me some breakfast. It was early morning, and they didn't eat bacon and all these things, so I said, I refused. I said, I'll just have some porridge. I saw this old sting with I've never, and I said, I'll eat some porridge with some honey and jam, and it was lovely. And then they said to me, you'll have to go to sleep, and then we'll take you to Yorkshire in the morning. You know, we'll put you on a train and take you to Yorkshire. I said, okay, that's fine. So I got myself, I took my case, they helped me, they were so lovely. And I thought, what an exciting time, but I don't know, any. everybody's white looking, and I'm thinking, everybody's different colors here, and I'm the only black person here. You know, I look so odd, and I thought, this girl came out and she said, no, come on, let's take you to your room and we'll make you comfortable and we'll get your transport in the morning. And a British, somebody from the British Council brought me to Yorkshire, so I was not left on my own. As I was coming on the train, I was on a train, which I've never been on a bloody train before in all my life. So I got on this train and I'm coming up to Yorkshire and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I think I'm going to go back home. I'm going to turn back to London and go back home. But the... He was like a, you know, a gentleman. He said, no, no, he kept telling me, have some coffee. I said, I don't drink coffee. Have some tea. I said, okay, I'll have some tea. So he said, he put sugar, he bring it for me. And he made me so comfortable. I'm thinking, he's behaving like my dad. So I said, okay, I think I'm going to be warming to this gentleman. However, we got, we came to, we stopped so many places. And I'm thinking, oh, look at the scenery. It's beautiful and green, like people told me. And flowers everywhere. And I'm thinking, oh, this is really a beautiful country. And I've really made a good choice because they said we had, we had roses, we've had honey, we've had all sorts. I said, okay, I'll try, see what we've got. Anyway, when we got to Yorkshire, I thought, bloody hell, I met a matron because I was going to do nursing. 
And she said, and I can remember her name like anything. Her name was Hogopian. She was German. And I thought, I'm going to be in really good trouble here. You know, anyway, she said, you will start your training tomorrow morning. I said, introduce me to all the other, and all the other chaps and girls. And they were all white. I was the only black girl there. And I think to myself, what do I do with my hair? I had long hair. How do I comb my hair to go to do nursing? I had no hairpins. I had nothing. I had to wear a hat. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I'm such... I'm in such a mess, I'm saying to the matron, I said, you think I can go back home tomorrow? <laughs> she said, no, no. I think, I think, uh, Miss Ramkisun, she called me by my surname, you will have to stay here. Your father has made a contract for you and you've got, you've got enough GCs, you've got enough, you've got through the British Council, you can do your nursing. So I said, but I came to do law. She, she said to me, well, you can decide what you want to do later on. Anyway, as we went on, she got so nice to me because I was frightened of her, very scared of this blonde lady. I've never seen a blonde lady in my life. And she said to me, you will be fine. Tomorrow morning, we'll sort you out. And I thought, she's going to sort me. What is she going to do to me? Anyway, she said, you're going to meet these, these girls and these boys, and you all introduce yourself. And you all go and sit and have a good chat. And tomorrow we all have to start studying. So I was, I was okay. I did love the country, but I didn't like the cold. Because I was thinking to myself, I didn't bring enough knickers to keep me warm. Because when I came in England, I didn't expect it would be so cold in the wintertime. I loved the summer, but not the winds. Because we have seen a bit of snow back home. But on the same day, it come and gone. Yeah. But in here, when it came, in the 60s and 70s, it was a lot, lot of snow, as we know. Mm. Snow and ice, snow and ice, mm. and fog. Mm. That was, which we never, never see the fogs back home, never. But when I, that really scared me, the fog. The snow was bad, but the fog was terrible. Mm. That it really, it put me off. And the first Christmas, it was so lovely. We went to church midnight mass in Pudsey. Coming back home, all the girls, not you. No. And we were singing in Italian. You know, this beautiful. And the, the, the sister came with us, you know. The, oh, yes. Yeah. That's right. And he was singing. And, and everybody opened the door. Come in, come in. They would give us uh, orange juice, uh, oranges, uh, apples, all that. They liked us singing in Italian. Beautiful. And the sister, she couldn't stop laughing, say how nice it is for this girl. We enjoyed every minute of it that first Christmas. Then it started to come snow. Oh, the snow, my God, was that big. We couldn't, we were laughing. So we never see snow. It was just a bit, you know, we, when it's, it's always playing outside like a children throwing the snow at each other. The sisters, no, 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 no good, no good. We loved it. <laughs>
when I first came to England, I was still a schoolgirl, and we lived in Birmingham, and my mother worked at the Selly Oak Hospital as a nurse, and Dad used to work in the factory. Uh, one of the questions I got asked at school was, where in Africa is Jamaica? And I thought, what do they teach these children in England? But I'd soon settle in, because without blowing my own trumpet, I was a, little, a bright little girl. I think it was just because everyone just kept going about England, you know, this great place. Like in the Caribbean, now people go on about America. And you get there and you see these, some of the grotty buildings. But some places, because Mom used to take us out, as you travelled around, you know, you saw some of the nicer because Birmingham was one of the inner cities. Yes, except when we came, we could not find no pasta, we could not find oil, we could not find nothing as Italian. So in Chapitan Road, they opened an Italian shop there. And slowly, you know, we start to find some Italian food and so on. But you miss your home for three or four years. You never settle in this country. Yeah. The most rich country, you know, you, you, especially also girls, because we've never been away from home. Uh, special, uh, on a special occasion like Christmas, Easter, uh, August, you know, special feast. That's when it was feeling a bit sorry for mm, ourselves, you know. Yeah. We pained a bit and, you know, that's obviously we missed the, the friend, we missed the parents. No matter how much you argue with the parents when you're there, yeah. but when mm, you're yes. away, you miss them so much. Uh, but once you get married, obviously a life change. And, you know, we say, oh yes, I miss home, I miss my parents, but now I'm married, I've got my, fa my own family. So you start to get back, yeah. you know, away from thinking, oh, I want to go back home. My home is here now. And I just don't know, you know, that when, I, when we came that, that year, 1957, mm. I don't know what, what's happened that time. I was feeling happy in one way, and then I felt so sorry to leave home. My, my mother, she said always, you'll be all right. She was calling me pagliaccio, means, you know, clown. 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 You'll be okay, you'll be okay. She said. Anyway, when I came, we didn't like that bread, yeah, yeah. sliced bread. So I said, oh, right, yeah. what thing I can do? I wrote to my mom, send some yeast. Yes. She sent yeast, and we started to make our own bread. Yeah. That's it. And that's I used the, to make mine too, every weekend. Yeah. I used to bring a bit, because she got married, she lived in, in, in Leeds, uh, what they call it? Round the road. Round the road, behind the, behind the blind school I used to live. So when I used to make the bread, every weekend almost, I used to bring a nice little loaf of bread for a nice and fresh. Uh, when first they start to make the bread, the matron, she was absolutely horrible. She, she says, you got to stop making bread. But anyway, somebody said something to the office. They said, the girls, they don't like English bread, sliced bread at them Sorry. days. So they said they start to make their own bread, but the matron, she's against it. So anyway, they, they got, she got the message to the sister to say, let the girls make their own bread. At least we know they're here and they're happy and they keep themselves more uh, occupied so they don't miss too much at home because they start to make their own food 
and that's how we began to make our bread. And everybody was happy with that. But when I came in the August, it was not too cold. But then I got the culture shock when the winter came. And the food that's uh, available now, there was no Caribbean food. So all the nice mangoes and sugarcane and guineps and all the things that we had in the Caribbean, you know, there was not available. And I thought, oh, I want to go back home. It's cold and I'm hungry. Mm -hmm. Mom used to buy the grapes and they make apple pies and we survive on rice and corned beef. And she said, well, can't send you back home now. It's Then she was working at Selly Oak Hospital earning 48 pounds per month. So mm -hmm. I just got on with it. Yeah. I fitted into school very nicely. The teachers was, oh, you're from the Caribbean and you're so intelligent, you know. And I'm thinking, well, what do you expect? Che li preso tu braccia camicetta fiore blu Vuoi fa signore nella nanza scuola pure tu Te piglia sigaretta quando accadde per papà Te miette già un rossetto come vede fa mamma Just twice I went to the Mecca But them days, up past ten, the buses were stopped And there was no taxi like in our days So we had to run to make sure we would get to the last bus Otherwise, the door would be locked because we was in a hostel. And the sister, she was very strict, you know, matron. We was called a sister. She was very strict. You had to be home here at past 10. Otherwise, you sleep in the park because we, the, the hostel was, it was nice, it was surrounded by the factories, but we had a nice park in front of us. So to make sure, and then at the same time, I think it was not just me, most of the girls, we was always looking behind us, just if any boys, they would come and they would do something to us, you know. Because of a bit, any, any girls put themselves in a family way, forget to go back home, because they would not accept a daughter or cousin or sister as a baby or as petting the baby. There was not, not, not that kind of things. Them days. Now, maybe they, maybe they have changed. But them days, as my sisters, I'd rather throw myself into the sea rather than go back home. So we had to always look and never go out one girl. We was always two or three girls together to be safe. I met my husband. He was, he's Hungarian and he was come from Hungary. And uh, we met just a week after the St. Valentine's Day. And then in three months we got married. We got married just a month before a year I was here. We got married. And that's it. There we are, 58 years married. And I appreciate every bit of it now. But we ne I never came here for stay all this my life. So go here, go in England. For, for years, contract, finish contract and go back home. Because there was quite a few boys after me. I was, you know, 20 year old. But the, the, when they're the coming here, you know, they was out there, but he couldn't. Parents were allowed at day. But when I went back first time, after four years, I was already married with a little child. 
and it was uh, the feast of our village, a lot of people gathering. And this, uh, so this boy, so one of them said, hey, Ursula, can I come and talk to your dad? I said, about what? You know, to go out together. I said, I'm sorry, I'm married. You're not. I said, yes, I am married. I said, that's my little girl. That's my husband. Oh, they said, they go hard broke. I said, that's it. Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. Welcome to Love the Words. This is the point in the programme where I bring you some wordy stuff from the writing squad. You may be thinking, well, who are they? And are they a small group of writing soldiers assembled to take on special wordy tasks? In a way, yes. The writing squad is a development programme that supports writers who are based in the north of England. Every two years, they recruit 30 writers aged 16 to 21. They offer a free programme of workshops, one-to-ones, project activity and professional development. After this, they continue to offer writers support as they begin their careers. I graduated from the squad many years ago and I'm still involved in much of what they do. If you know a young person who may be interested, you can visit the website writingsquad.com. Now, a special poetry reading from Lydia Allison. If you like wedding dresses, you're in for a treat. Hello, my name's Lydia Allison. I'm a poet and I live in Sheffield. I'm a graduate of the Writing Squad and I currently work as a mentor and a tutor and a writing facilitator. Um, but before that, I worked in a wedding dress shop as a bridal consultant and I have a bunch of poems which are all named after different wedding dresses, which were all named after different women or all have different female names. So as well as doing my actual job there, I really like to listen to the bride's stories and I thought it was really lovely to hear the different routes that brought people to this point in their lives. Um, I'm going to start with a poem which has a lot of the sort of wedding images in it and will maybe get us in the mood um, to hear some more and this one's called Georgie. I like you, he said, I'm like you, so many things nearly close to. I borrowed a bluestone necklace. Everything shone. I could hardly tell it was a cake. Pearl-like, heavy, like the bouquet of almost white roses. The dress had lace like a tattoo with the skin missing. And the box pleats were like paper before it's lined. He wrote me a letter once. I found a feather, put it in a box 
with handmade envelopes I'd never used. The feather was blue and I dreamed about it. How we'd wash it until it fluffed like baby's hair. I loved him. Took the nib, to ink, to paper, to the final, unfamiliar letter. Um, I think there's something really interesting in names and the idea of changing your name. I don't really have any political feelings about it, but I do think it's interesting. Um, the next couple of poems that I'm going to read, just one after the other, are kind of set before the big day. Um, so I'm going to read Diana, which is about a proposal, and Nina, which is maybe a less formal kind of proposal as well. Diana. I proposed in the pub with the beer he likes. Saw a strip from my notebook. It was cheap and to hand when he went to buy a drink. I folded a circle. The rip was barely visible. I made it so neat. He took it off, thought it was a joke. The paper wouldn't stand the rain rolling off the bus stop roof as we stood waiting. Nina. We stole your mate's mate's script and went upstairs, then further up and through the metal door and into air. We pulled out pages, cracked them into angles formed for catching wind and let the papers puddle on the ground. Let's learn to speak another language, move, confine the outside world to small talk, called, and learn to trace new routes from home and back, to live around each other, making coffee, playing music in the rooms we share. Here. I'll show you all the marks I made for you on paper. Walk with me to water, where I can teach you all the folds you need, and we'll make boats. So I think in, in all of those poems, I have a bit of a thing for paper, which maybe tells you something about where my head is at the moment, um, or generally. The last two pieces I'm going to read are based around sort of more mature stories, um, and conversations that I had with colleagues rather than brides. I really like to look at how viewpoints change and how people explore their feelings and their experiences through storytelling and in different ways. Um, and so I want to explore in the first poem, the happiness, which is found in leaving a bad relationship. And then in the second poem, um, my view of like a true romance and the comfort and happiness found in the right, with the right person after many years. Ibanda. I don't miss my life. Yes, we had money. Four cars in the drive. It wasn't all bad. My father kept him in check then. He died. Four holidays a year. It got worse. I stayed for the kids. I turned down work when I was young. A good job. Worked in his shop until he put an end to that. I'm friendly. So the days got longer. My fingers scanned the sides continually, searching for dust or cracks. The house caught the sun in the morning and held it. One night I did it. A small hold all with nothing but a mobile phone, a note I couldn't bring myself to leave, and 400 quid from the safe drawer. Ibarra. I'm not in love, come on, we're a team, we're past that. I know, look, here's seashells, a daisy chain. I didn't like him then, 
knew we'd be married. He was a young Barry Gibb, had a girlfriend who lived upstairs. I was a virgin before, really. It was the 70s. We honeymooned mostly in the nude. Forget romance. Look, the dry flowers curl round like a hand. I really loved that idea of exploring all of the stories and conversations those wedding dresses have overheard. I thought that was really clever of Lydia to do. And I think writing about objects is a really great place to start when you're at a loss for what to write about or you're not really sure where you can get your inspiration from. You know, you can look at the objects around you and at the moment we're all kind of stuck in lockdown in a sense. So it's a good time to be doing that and being more observant. You know, what sentimental value does your object hold? Does it have a story of its own? How would you feel about writing about being an object? I think this allows you to free up your mind in a way. You can take the pressure off and you can explore a different voice. So yeah, I think we should say a big thank you to Lydia for letting us once again broadcast her work. Lydia has done a lot with East Leeds FM now. She has been part of the Writing on Air Festival and lots of other writing projects for us. So big thank you to Lydia. I hope you enjoyed that and it brightens up your day. And a big thank you to everyone who's listening out there. If you would like to get in touch and send in some writing work, you can do at info at elfm.co.uk. Till next time, stay safe and take care. Love the control. Love the command. Love the spacebar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. Come on.